Marvelites you are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 593. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink, and let's talk about some stuff. What's going on, Ryan? What's new? There's a lot going on. Uh, I've been in the office a bunch lately. You know, Normally we've been working from home, but I've been in the office and I saw Marvel Comics senior editor Nick Lowe. He's a ding-dang delight friend. Been on the on our podcast here many times. It was great. We were talking about stuff uh, that he's working on in the Spider-Man office, talking about some secrets and so much more. Um, while I much prefer working from home, it's nice to see people once in a while. It sure is. This is not the show about going to the office or being a hermit at home. This is the official Marvel podcast where we talk about what's happening this week in Marvel, whether it's games, comics, movies, TV, or whatever we're excited about. We got a fun one. This week, we're talking with the Academy Award-nominated visual effects team for Marvel Studios' Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. And uh, a quick reminder for all you folks, you can watch the Oscars, aka the Academy Awards, Sunday on ABC at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. That is March 12th, this very Sunday, um, to look out for all of our wonderful Marvel Studios nominees. But also stick around because a little bit later in the show, there's going to be a what? A Marvel Insider Code. Get you 12 billion insider points. At My math least. may be off. You'll have to stick around to the end to find out exactly how many points and how you get them and all that good stuff. But let's dive into things because next week is the X-Men 60 Uncanny Years event. It's a special one. Uh, I wanted to put this over at the top of the show because I am hosting that virtual live event on Thursday, March 16th, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern. It is a very cool one. Now, the event is only open to Marvel Unlimited Annual or Annual Plus subscribers. We know lots of folks are already signed up. If you haven't done it yet, we may have some spots left open. I've been poking and prodding the people to make sure um, we, we extend the deadlines a little bit, let a little bit more people come in. If you don't know what it is, it's we are celebrating 60 years of X-Men. So we're going to be talking with amazing people who have contributed to the X-Men mythos over the years. Chris Claremont, Louise and Walter Simonson. We've got folks from uh, maybe our animated side of things. We've got some folks who are drawing some incredible comics in the 90s and 80s. And I look, me as a super fanboy is losing it because we're going to have Jonathan Hickman, who's great. I love Jonathan. He's a wonderful, you know, mensch. But Grant frickin' Morrison coming on to the event. I can't tell you how cool that is. Grant Morrison being one of my all-time favorite comic book writers and wrote one of my all-time favorite runs of any comic, New X-Men, from 2001 to 2004. And just, oh my gosh. Lorraine, <laughs> it's Grant Morrison. It's so cool. It, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. I mean... Befitting 60 years of X-Men, it's going to be a big deal. I'm super excited to watch along. Yeah, it's been, honestly, it's been almost 20 years. I was doing the math. 20 years since Grant had done anything with us at Marvel. So this is <laughs> this is a big thing. This is really fun, really cool. Uh, of course, Marvel Unlimited Annual and Annual Plus members are eligible to register and attend this exclusive event for free. Current Marvel Unlimited Annual or Annual Plus members will receive an email with details on how to register for the event, or you can go and sign up or upgrade to Marvel Unlimited Annual or Annual Plus. Go to marvel.com slash X-Men 60 event. That's X-M-E-N 6-0-E-V-E-N-T. Yeah, do it, do it, do it. Um, And then enjoy the heck out of it. It's a big celebration year this year. Gosh, so many great anniversaries and X-Men are going to kick us off strong. Yeah. 
All right. Let's talk about some Marvel Snap. Ryan, mm-hmm. I know that you and I love this game, but now it's going back to the future past. Um, of course, we love the iconic, the classic X-Men story, Days of Future Past. Uh, and this new season has begun this week inspired by that classic story. Um, we actually had Ben Brodon, who is the main creative force behind the game, the developer Second Dinner, on Marvel's Pull List podcast, Ryan, with you. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take a little listen to that. Yeah, so Days of Future Past, it's one of the most iconic Marvel storylines of all time. Is that is that my, is that yes. my, am I yes. being yes. too bold by saying that? No. Uh, and uh, we're, ex- <laughs> we're excited to explore it. We're obviously huge fans of, uh, of, all, of all of that uh, at the studio. And uh, yeah, there's new cards, there's new locations, there's uh, new variants, there's, there's a ton of new stuff. Yeah, Ben's the best. You can hear about the whole new season and the comics that inspired it on Marvel's pull list. But let's also get into it a little bit here. So we have a new season pass character, Nimrod, uh, a five point five cost card. When this card is destroyed, add a copy to each other location. Uh, Great if you have a destroy deck. Um, Great if it's just like you level things out and like let it populate. So fun. So fun. Also, three new cards will be added to the series. It's the Series 5 releases that appear in the token shop from the collector's reserves. So we have Master Mold, which, of course, adds two Sentinels to the opponent's hand, which could be just too much for them. <laughs> um, that's going to be on March 14th, which is uh, next week. Kitty Pride. uh can phase out of the game after you play her. And each time you play her again, she bumps up two plus power, which is stupid. Yeah. So like you, she starts at powerful. She's one cost. So you can play her and then pull her right out. And then the next time you play her, she's four, but she still costs one. And then you play her and you pull her out. Then she's still one cost. And now she's six. And like, you could just keep doing it. It's, it's wild. It's really good. Awesome. That's so fun. She's going to be, she's going to be a fun one to watch. I want her. Then Negasonic Teenage Warhead. So for her, if another card is played at the same location, it destroys itself and that card that's coming March 28th. Um, There's also going to be three new locations, Krakoa, Asteroid M, and Orcus Forge that all have different abilities. There's new variants by Jim Lee, Dan Hip, and more. There's a variant rush. Every time you open a collector's reserve between March 21st and April 4th, there's a chance you could get one of the brand new steampunk variants or titles. And these variants are super unique. They're only available during that variant rush event. So you definitely want to check them out. There's Steampunk Bishop, Falcon Shocker, Cerebro, Yellow Jacket. And then they also have titles, that little titles that go under your name, like Steam Powered, Fully Leather Clad. <laughs> Dead. I love it. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, the goggles do nothing. <laughs> I l- truly, that one is so. I'm I'm it's... so glad that they embrace like the weird like the pop culture love that we have at Marvel. That's a freaking Simpsons reference. That all I hear is the goggles do nothing from Rainier Wolfcastle in oh the uh, Radioactive Man episode. Yes. Oh my god, so good. It's so great. It's I. Mwah, chef's kiss. Yeah. Um, there's also new bundles with avatars, variants, and more. Just go play Marvel Snap is the TLDR. Yeah. There's so much great stuff coming through the end of May into April, and I'm sure that will continue on infinitely. It's an ever-expanding universe of Marvel Snap, and we love to see it. Heck, 
Yeah. Uh, also on the game front, Viv Vision and Kate Bishop are joining Marvel Contest of Champions, which is super cool. Uh, they're in the game investigating a string of bizarre thefts across the battle realm, and then they're going to be working together to uncover a sinister Hydra plot that threatens the entire contest. You can see them fighting a big nasty Red Skull in the trailer that is up on Marvel.com and our YouTube and everywhere else. Uh, it's called the Shot in the Dark event, and it began this week. You can see that trailer and then get in the game to try to get yourself uh, them. They have really cool powers and abilities and uh, a lot of unique stuff there. Also, there's a new um, danger room function in the game. Beast has rebuilt the danger room, but something has gone awry. You got to do your best to survive the danger room and bring back danger room components for analysis. You will be compensated for your efforts by trading danger room components into the danger store. I have said danger more times than I have in the last like year. It's my middle name. <laughs> Congrats to Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. It's already getting awards. If you haven't yet watched the Incredibles series now streaming on Disney Plus and also on the Disney Channel, go get you some. That show is so delightful. But the series was recently recognized by the Critics' Choice Association Seal of Female Empowerment and Entertainment. That seal represents outstanding new films and television series that illuminate the female experience and perspective through authentically told female-driven stories. And in addition, the series received a Common Sense Media's Common Sense Seal, which Common Sense is an incredible organization that does a lot of sort of deep dives into content and serving the young ones. And this seal recognizes outstanding entertainment that includes age-appropriate material with the potential to spark family conversations, entertain families of all kinds, and have a positive lasting effect on society. And so well-deserved. The series, again, it's so delightful. You can watch Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur now streaming on Disney+, Plus, or you can check it out on the Disney Channel. Also, shout out to the Marvel HQ YouTube channel if you uh, have a fam it's a great place to go and subscribe and check out lots of the Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur shorts that release. Oh, and speaking of Marvel HQ, hey, get into it. Huge new thing just launched. Uh, the Avengers are back by popular demand on Marvel HQ with Marvel's Avengers Mech Strike Mechasaurs. It's the third season of Marvel's Mech Strike, and it's now available on the Marvel HQ YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Marvel HQ. Uh, suitable for the whole family to watch. And it is a ding, dang delight. I've been working hard at this uh, with the Marvel HQ team. And it's a new 30-episode season featuring the Avengers taking on Ultron this season. Ultron has returned to take over the world to destroy humanity, as he so often wants to do. Um, and this time he's doing it by trying to send us back into the prehistoric age. So Shuri and Iron Man are teaming up to develop some new mech strike armors that are able to transform into mechanical dinosaurs or beasts in order to give them a fighting chance to save the day. As only the Avengers can, check out the very first episode now playing on the Marvel HQ YouTube channel and look out for more episodes of more series throughout the year. There's going to be a ton of great stuff that I am so proud of that I've been working really, really hard at. So I hope you guys will definitely go and check that out. And please, if you haven't already, go over to youtube.com slash Marvel HQ and subscribe uh, and keep an eye out for even more great stuff throughout the year. We've been releasing some other really fabulous stuff over there. Um, we have, of course, 
you know, as I mentioned, Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur shorts. We have Marvel's Avenger Stunt Squad shorts, which are so cute. You should definitely go check those out. Plus, of course, Spidey and his amazing friends, Marvel Superhero Adventures, Marvel's Avengers Assemble, lots and lots and lots of stuff. So um, you can watch tons of animation and fun, lots of fun narrative content, um, which I know that people love. So go check it out. Enjoy. And keep your eye out because there's going to be even more fun stuff throughout the year from Marvel's Avengers Mech Strike Mechasaurs as well as Avengers 60th Anniversary Celebration. So stay tuned. Yeah, very cool. All right. Let's talk about toys, 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 toys. Wait, what did you say? Toys, 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 toys. Our pals on Hasbro's Marvel Legends team revealed a whole butt ton of figures and teases recently, but it's exciting. Ben Riley, Spider-Man. Chasm, aka all messed up Ben Riley from the Dark Web mm. crossover, which is wild to me that this crossover ended like a month ago and we're already seeing the figure coming out, which is super cool. Miles Morales in his turtleneck sweatshirt deal that we saw in the last like, year or two. Spider Woman Jessica Drew in the black and red suit from Carla Pacheco and Perry Perez's series, which is such a great comic book. Mm-hmm. Everybody should be reading it on Marvel Unlimited. Electra Daredevil, who has been showing up in the current Daredevil comics of the last two years. That again, so recent, so cool. And then you get a random throwback like Tarantula. He's got them <laughs> spikiest little foots. He's just like, I'm a I'm a kick you with my feet. Uh, it's really fun. There's a figure of the Rose, the Rose, a.k.a. Uh, Wilson Fisk's son who tried to take over and then got killed. But he's like, he's got this cool mask. It's a great character design, but he's just like holding a rose and he's so dramatic looking. Ugh. Spider-Man animated series two pack in the VHS style boxes, which are just gorgeous. I have a bunch of the X-Men ones like that. We get a two pack of Doc Ock and Aunt May, which everybody wants an Aunt May figure. You're going to get one, but the Doc Ock, so good. But are they marrying each other? In the animated series, I don't think they do. I don't think do, so. They, I don't think they do. In, the in your imagination, series. they can. They can and have. Yes. A Mark One Iron Man, which looks great. Classic, old school, original Iron Man. Bucky Captain America is looking real shiny. A Black Widow. She's just terrific. It's good, good Black Widow. Hawkeye with a friggin' Sky Cycle. Nice. If you're a fan of like the 80s uh, Avengers comics or, or even better... The uh, Captain America and the Avengers video game, the arcade game or Super Nintendo Genesis game, he had that sky cycle because Clint can't fly, but every a lot of the others fly. <laughs> Poor Clint, I he's know. just trying to keep up. It it really takes me back to the the years when he was like married to Mockingbird. I know, it's yeah. good stuff. So good. Uh, but anyway, the Sky Cycle looks great. It's really cool. Then we get a bunch of two packs of Secret Wars, like the original 1984 Secret Wars, two pack of Monica Rambeau, Captain Marvel versus Doctor Doom. I love it. The Doctor Doom is capeless, like the old Marvel superhero Secret Wars oh, figure. Yeah. Didn't have a cape. And, and, and in the story part, he lost a cape. So that looks really cool. A Thor versus Destroyer two pack. Mm. Destroyer is like really big and cool. Then original like Incredible Hulk number one, Gray Hulk and mm. Nerdlinger, Bruce Banner in his lab coat two pack, which is good. Before his glow up, yeah. We get a freaking Black Knight and Cersei two pack in their 90s bomber jackets. Nice. Wow. I love it so much. The 90s were weird, everybody. Uh, we got a two pack of Skrull Queen Varanki in mm. the Spider Woman costume from Secret Invasion and a Super Skrull from the same series. Then there's like a giant 
big ass super adaptoid who probably like 12 inches really cool green has uh, a bunch of the visual effects and looks and, and weapons of the avengers so that was cool and 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 they teased the next marvel legends Haslab project they didn't say what it was but we do know it will be avengers themed because of course we're celebrating 60 years of avengers as well this year so mm-hmm. stay tuned for more on that very exciting So much stuff. Oh, and speaking of our sweet boy Hulk, Mm. uh, there's a new Incredible Hulk number one coming this June, uh, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Nick Klein. And this is the new age of monsters. It's begun. I'm just going to get into the flavor text here. As an enraged Hulk tries to take control of Bruce Banner's body permanently, a mysterious immortal turns every monster in the Marvel Universe against Banner in an attempt to free their creator, the primordial Mother of Horrors, which is shockingly not Lorraine Sink. With the help of an unlikely new friend, Banner and Hulk must try to stop the world from getting plunged into darkness in this terrifying new series. I love this. You know... Immortal Hulk's series was so phenomenal, really like leaning into the body horror and, you know, the classic monsterness. And I think this is going to be a really new fun take exploring some more monsters in the Marvel Universe. Can't wait to see it. That is coming in June. So put it on your pull list, baby. Yeah. Philip Kennedy Johnson does horror really, really well with monster horror. Um, and I think, as you mentioned, the body horror of uh, Immortal Hulk is going to be a different vibe of yeah. horror from this. And mm-hmm. Nick Klein has been doing such good work on Thor over the last yeah. you know, year and change. And yeah, I'm very excited for this. Very, very cool news. Also cool comics news is that we are launching a 20th Century Studios comic book imprint starting this April. The first series in that imprint is Planet of the Apes, number one. It's the first title from this new imprint that's on sale April 5th, written by David F. Walker, art by David Wachter. Great cover by Joshua Kassara. The cool thing about this is we have been doing some comics based on various 20th century films and properties for a little while now. So we're going to take Planet of the Apes, put it under the umbrella. Alien, put it under the umbrella. Predator, put it under the umbrella. And they're all going to be squeezing under the umbrella, kissing, making out, having all the good times, uh, staying safe from the rain. Like Alien and Predator do, just like a meet cute in the rain, sharing oh, an umbrella. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm on your Wattpad. I know. Thanks. Um, <laughs> we've got those, those three. And then you never know. Maybe there's more to come from uh, this imprint. So stay tuned. I love that. For those of you who love to get a hero debut, here is a hot tip for you. There's going to be a new spider hero debuting in April. The end of the Spider-Verse sees the debut of a very top secret new character, a new spider on the scene written by Dan Slott with art by Mark Bagley. And they are introducing that new character in Spider-Man number seven on April 5th. There is also a classified spoiler variant cover by Umberto Ramos. Look out for that at your local comic book shop. Very, very cool. Also cool, Marvel's Voices Spider-Verse number one, which is coming up in April on sale April 12th. So that's coming up soon. Let your local comic shop know you want this because it's got a ton of great creators. Cody Ziegler, Jeremy Holt, Vita Ayala, Steve Fox, Jason Liu, Janoy Lindsay, Alberto Albuquerque, Luciano Vecchio, Ken Lashley, and so many more. It's got stories. Stories like a team up between Miles Morales and Misty Knight, which is 
what we've been seeing in the current Miles Morales book. It's been really fun. We've got the return of Cooper Cohen, aka Web Weaver, coming mm. back against a new version of Craven the Hunter. Spider Punk and his band return to face down his reality's version of the Sinister Six, aka the Sinister Sextet, which is cool. There's a Silk story. We get to meet Spider Friend. The all new character comes from a corner of the Marvel multiverse that's filled with laugh tracks and filmed in front of a live studio audience. Uh, there's also a dystopian future story where Electro controls the power grid and we see the very first adventure of a new character called Recluse. Again, I saw that character looking really cool. Uh, there's even more stories in this anthology. Of course, the Marvel's Voices anthologies are always a ding dang delight. Yeah, love those. Definitely go and check them out. We love some Marvel's Voices. Also, while you are getting prepared for the summertime, get ready for the Contest of Chaos. Um, that storyline is going to kick off with a prelude in Scarlet Witch Annual Number 1, which is on sale June 21st, written by Steve Orlando with art by Carlos Nieto. Great cover by Russell Dodderman, who just crushes everything that he touches in the best possible way. So this is a prelude to the Contest of Chaos. It's going to get us into it. And that's going to be an interconnected saga that's going to run across various Marvel comics, annual issues this summer. Um, the story is going to star the newly rejuvenated Agatha Harkness, fresh off her exciting role in Midnight Suns as she attempts to craft a new Darkhold book using chaos magic. And then spinning out of writer Steve Orlando and Sarah Pichelli's hit Scarlet Witch ongoing series, Agatha's going to reunite with the Scarlet Witch for the first time since her rejuvenation. Um, so excited for that awkward family reunion. <laughs> 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 and uh, in that, we're going to see what happens when she learns of Wanda's recent absorption of Cthon. Uh, Agatha decides to educate her former student on the dangers of such an endeavor. Um, like a good old teacher would. But Wanda is not a little meek pupil anymore. She's She's been through it. And, and Agatha's intentions are not always so straightforward. So I'm excited to see how the drama plays out this June. Definitely look out for that Scarlet Witch annual number one. And then all of those various annual comics throughout the summer for the Contest of Chaos. Not fully related, but in the Marvel's Midnight Suns video game, you, you work with Agatha a whole bunch. And Agatha's got this great relationship with, with the caretaker and there's all this Wanda stuff. But Lorraine, did I tell you that in the game, at the point that I'm at, you, you get Steve Rogers, he comes into the game. And then Blade, if you follow a certain path, Blade is really enamored of Carol Danvers. And is he's like, she's so cool. And and you can like poke him to be like, you should like talk to her and like all this stuff. And at one Don't point, shy. Blade is, he like starts talking to Carol about a book. He's like trying to like, you know, make, make, <laughs> make some small moves. talk. And he's like, oh, trying to talk to her about the book. And Steve Rogers is there. He's like, oh, you guys talking about a book? What are you talking about? And Carol's <laughs> like, yeah, Blade's talking about a book. We should do a book club. And Blade is just trying to like get closer to Carol. And Steve just sort of winds his way into it. And so oh. then Blade starts a book club for the whole purpose of trying to like start a relationship with Carol. And Steve doesn't get it. And I had a conversation with Steve in the game where he's like, I think Blade's just trying to be really good friends with me. But like, it seems weird. He started the whole book club to be my friend. Oh, it's sweet, so fun. Steve. This sweet, sweet the game is child. so hilarious and so fun. Anyway, um, if you need more Agatha or great relationship stuff in the Marvel universe, Marvel's Midnight Suns. Tremendous. I got to get on that. 
Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the comics for a second and talk about Sharon Carter Destroyer. Whoa. Uh, yeah, because in the most recent issue of Captain America Sentinel of Liberty, number 10, uh, we saw the demise, seemingly demise, of Roger Aubrey, a.k.a. the Destroyer, in a great, great issue. Destroyer is like this big, epic hero story, and it's just devastating. But... Sharon sees this and that profound impact that all of this has on her is sort of her latest step in the in what she's going through in the Marvel Universe. And we see her transformation uh, coming out of the upcoming Captain America Cold War crossover. So we put up on Marvel.com some designs of her new look. She's got a really cool new weapon. She's got this mask. She's sort of like honoring the Destroyer, but taking it in her own way. It's very, very cool. Captain America Sentinel of Liberty number 10 out right now. Terrific damn comic. Go read it and then get ready because... April 12th, Captain America Cold War Alpha number one is coming out by the teams on the Captain America comics. Uh, Colin Kelly, Jackson Lansing, and Tochi Anyabuchi, all the writers, and then art by Carlos Magno. It is going to be something real fun. Oh, yeah. Also coming on April 12th, we've got some space dummies. We love them. The Guardians of the Galaxy are back in Guardians of the Galaxy number one, also written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, who, of course, are working with Captain America, uh, also with art by Kev Walker. And this is going to introduce an overwhelming new cosmic threat to the Marvel Universe, one that has emerged from the very heart of the team from Grootfall. So fans can go to Marvel.com to check out the comic book trailer. That's the way to do it. In the trailer, fans can see the lineup of the new run in action, including Star-Lord, Gamora, Drax, Nebula, and Mantis. They can also glimpse the devastating effects of Grootfall and witness the true galaxy-bending might of the Guardians and what they're up against. So go check it out. Put it on your pull list. That's coming up in just a couple of weeks. Guardians of the Galaxy number one. Let's do it. Yeah. Of course, we also have Infinity Comics on Marvel Unlimited. We wanted to share with you that there's a new issue of the Spider-Verse Unlimited track, which is number 40 on Spider-Verse Unlimited, and it's a Silk Solo story, the third chapter that's sort of like planting the seeds for an upcoming crossover happening in the Infinity Comics this year. So it's it's cool. It's, you know, Silk. She's not much for talking about her feelings, but a date gone sideways and a mystery man in the shadows has her contemplating life in the bunker and wondering if something wicked is on the way. And this is, again, setting up some more stuff for a big spring team-up, so stay tuned for that. Written by Jay Holtham, art by Fend Hamilton, and colored by Pete Pantazis. Speaking of more wonderful, fun stuff, we've got Marvel's Voices. It's back. The wonderful podcast that is hosted by Angelique Rocher, our pal. Um, and this week, she's talking to our very own John Michael Ennis, who is a director of talent relations and publishing recruitment over here at Marvel. He is a good egg. And here is a little tease of the show right now. The beating heart of Marvel is the comic books. And the beating heart of the comic books is Marvel's talent. So you always want to create authenticity with the audience. And the best way to do that is to tap into the talent. That is something that I am always working on. All right. Episodes are out every Thursday. Go listen to them on the SiriusXM app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, wherever you get your podcasts uh, is good by us. But it's a great series, a great show, and you don't want to miss it.
I love John Michael so much. I do too. He's, He's so just sweet. The best. God. All right. Uh, oh yeah. I also do a podcast, Marvel's Full List. We talked about it a little bit. It's the show all about Marvel's comics every week. Our picks for this week: new issues that just released include Amazing Spider-Man number twenty-one, Black Panther number fifteen, and Predator number one. All really, really good stuff. And as mentioned earlier in the show, for this week's reading club, we have co-founder and chief development officer at Second Dinner, Ben Brode. Ben, of course, the the the, the big creative dude behind Marvel Snap comes on to talk about the X-Men Days of Future Past comic books, as well as how that factors into the latest season of Marvel Snap. It's a fun one. Benna's enthusiasm, a million percent. You've heard him here on the show before. So you want more of that? It's a longer conversation with him and we get into some really great stuff about the, the classic comics. That's your show. Of course, Marvel's Pull List is out every Tuesday. Listen on the SiriusXM app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, but stick around because we have more coming up very soon, including that Marvel Insider Code a little bit later on, plus our chat with the Marvel Studios Black Panther Wakanda Forever VFX team. Can't wait for you to hear it. We'll be right back. Right, you're listening to This Week in Marvel. I'm Lorraine Sink. I'm Ryan Panagos, and it's now time for our interview with the Black Panther Wakanda Forever VFX team. Lorraine, break it down for us. Oh my gosh. It was a banger of an interview with Jeffrey Bowman, Craig Hammock, R. Christopher White, Dan Sudik, who all have a variety of jobs within the VFX team from the components of practical effects that they use on set that allow them to later go back and post and make everything look realistic. The way the VFX team works with director Ryan Coogler, cinematographer Autumn Gerald Arkopaw, production designer Hannah Beekler, the actors, it's all so incredible. It's so wild, all of the different processes. I learned so much. Like the amount of water these men were allowed to shoot at some of Hollywood's biggest actors blows my mind. Um, so please enjoy this conversation. It is a ding dang delight. I'm so lucky because I am here with the Oscar-nominated VFX team behind Marvel Studios' Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Gentlemen, there are a lot more of you than there are of me, and I want people to hear your voices and know who's <laughs> speaking. So would you mind introducing yourselves and saying your title? Uh, Craig, you're the first in my corner, so uh, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Craig Hammock, uh, Industrial Light and Magic uh, Visual Effects Supervisor. Chris White, uh, Weta Effects Visual Effects Supervisor. Hi, Dan Sudik, Special Effects Supervisor. Jeff Bauman, uh, Marvel Studios Visual Effects Supervisor. All right. It takes a village, clearly, to put together a film this epic. And obviously, the whole uh, Marvel team is just phenomenal, all of you folks who uh, work on the film. Uh, but I want to know about each of you personally. What is your Marvel origin story? What's the first way you encountered the Marvel Universe, the Marvel characters, or even your career here uh, with Marvel? Craig, why don't you kick us off again? Oh, good Lord. Um, <laughs> I think, honestly, I want to say the first Black Panther movie was my first Marvel movie. You know, obviously, Marvel works with Industrial Light and Magic quite a bit. And so that, like, there's a strong relationship there. And uh, I think when Black Panther came around, Jeannie King, the um, ILM producer, executive producer that was handling Marvel stuff, I, I also have a relationship with. And um, she... Thought it'd be a good match. Oh, what about you, Chris? This is my first Marvel show. So this is the first one I've been on. 
And honestly, it was when I saw the first Black Panther came out, I was like, oh, I wish I'd worked on that. You know, um, so that was something that I was that if they ever did a sequel, which I, you know, they would, um, that I was like, I'd love to work on it. And that's what I ended up telling some of my producers and and um, everybody at WetFX. So that's how I um, ended up on the show. Love it. What about you, Dan? I started with Marvel action, Iron Man 1. So kind of <laughs> back in the early days. Very early I've days. I worked yeah. on pretty much every Marvel U.S. based movie um, since. Super bragging rights. We love to see it. Dan's a legend. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Jeffrey? My first memory of kind of the Marvel uh, visual effects work was when I was at Digital Domain. And uh, they were doing actually test work for the first Iron Man. That, and, and ILM, I think, did the, did that work at the end of the day. But I remember being at DD at that time. And then the first show I worked on was the first Avengers when mm-hmm. Didi came in to do a little bit of, of work with, I think, a character called The Other, when Thanos was kind of introduced, um, just a handful of shots while Marvel was still down in, in Manhattan Beach. And then I ended up leaving Digital Domain to go more production side. So left Didi um, in like 2011 or so, 2012 during Iron Man 3, when was working on that at Didi and then shifted over to work at Marvel Studios on Cap 2. So Cap 2 was kind of my first Marvel Studios side experience where I got to work with Dan. That's when I, I, I met Dan. Um, and did lots of fun work on that one in Cleveland and launching cars. And, and I was a second unit uh, additional supervisor on that one. And then from there, I just basically kind of kept, you know, the revolving door, as, as Dan's well aware of. You go from kind of one to the next and then ended up, you know, Black the first Black Panther uh, where I got to work with Craig and then we kept working together on Black Widow, and then now this Black Panther as well with Dan. Chris joined us, which was great. And um, no, we had a fantastic team. And as you said, it's a village. Took all everybody, <laughs> lots of work, and there, you know, hundreds of artists um, and and technicians and welders and all kinds of stuff that are that took it to to make this thing happen. I love that. Well, you know, to go back, you know, we were talking about how it takes a village, and obviously, you know, you get so much from. Uh, director and co-writer Ryan Coogler, who's, what's the process like working with not only Ryan in the director's seat, but, you know, working with the various departments, because I know, you know, you have a whole world to bring to life on screen and you have uh, art development and all those different areas of the company that you uh, work together with. I think it's the collaboration, like you, you said, of where I think it's probably Dan and I at the forefront at the beginning that are trying to get people to commit to ideas and decisions and builds so that Dan can, because he, he gets hit first. Everything's a physical build with Dan. And, and I think both Craig, Chris, and I want nothing else but Dan to succeed in all of his builds because <laughs> that's going to, that'll help our work in the end. So there's a lot of conversations then between myself and Dan to try to figure out, you know, we need to execute something and, and, you know, that falls onto Dan's team and his, his shoulders. Um, and then we'll try to guide as that window closes, what would be best? Okay. What can you build in two days? What can you build in three months? What can, you know, and so that's kind of where the conversation goes back and back and forth, um, between us. And then Dan, you know, presents ideas to Ryan as far as what he could execute. Um, and then we try to loop Craig and Chris in as far as like, where is the handoff between practical, and visual effects, you know, so that's kind of the, I think, you know, 30,000 foot view of it. Um, but Dan's definitely tasked first, you know, with trying to execute the ideas or, or come up with ideas uh, 
that are represented in the script practically. And and Dan, for you, you know, what are you building and what does that look like on your end? <laughs> Basically, you take the concept of the script, you take the parameters of what the movie set's going to be, what the effect is, and you try to design um, as much of a practical effect as you can that you can build in the time allotted and deliver so that there'll be the least amount of um, visual effects later. And then um, for you gentlemen who are working later, what does your part of the process look like and how are you working with production to make that something that can be translated later? Chris, you want to go? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think for for me, it's a combination of things. Like Jeff and I started talking earlier on about some of the things that are more related to technical and artistic things that we were trying to work out and how we wanted to set up the show and, and our part of the show. Um, so that that started at the very beginning and, and, and went all the way through. But there is also part of the process we were working with Hannah, the production designer, developing these, like for my particular section, this underwater world. You know, she gave us all the information, all the designs and everything she had, and we started building. But the thing that I enjoyed about the show was it was very collaborative in that sense, that we could offer up some ideas and that with Ryan as well. And the other thing that was, yeah, particularly interesting here was when we were discussing some of these designs, there was always a discussion of why it was this way or how you were supposed to feel, you know, that we're traveling down with Namor and you're not certain about him. So I really like those conversations, particularly with her, where she's like, this is how it needs to feel. And then that we were able to integrate that into our designs. And it helped me with giving notes to some of the artists too, like, this looks great, but does it feel like this? You know, so that was that was a particular thing that was fun about this show. How about you, Craig? For my side of it, it's this was revisiting, you know, a world we had created in the first movie for a good chunk of it. So there was a, a familiarity there already. And again, being able to connect back with with Hannah to discuss you rarely get to revisit things that you've you've done, right? So it's a real pleasure to get to dive back into it and, you know, get an understanding from her of what worked from the first movie, what might not have worked from the first movie, and adjust based on the story that that we had to tell in this one. And knowing that there were brand new worlds, you know, brand new parts of the city to create, uh, for example, and being able to collaborate a little bit with the uh, art department and where they fit in, kind of how we're we're gonna arrive to them and stuff like that is again, uh, something from a vendor side of things that you rarely get to influence. You know, the good thing about about Marvel and certainly uh, working with, with Jeff is that you do get involved early, right? You do have influence in some ways over discussions that happen and, and um, you know, able to, to put your, your bits into it and kind of guide knowing how it's going to be achieved back at the shop, you know, with the the crew that you have. It's interesting because, you know, you mentioned more of Wakanda, you talked about the underwater world. And this is just such an interesting film because we're set in reality, right? We're on Earth. It's not like we're the Guardians and we're rocking out in space. <laughs> like there's a certain level of intense realism that happens on Earth. And you have all new worlds that you're creating. And then on top of it, you have the water invade the, the top world. It, there's a lot going on there. But I'm interested for each of you, what part of the film, or is there a scene or a section or a component of the film that you spent a lot of time on 
that um, was maybe the most challenging or that took the most um, time and focus from you to figure out and get right in that really amazing, realistic way? Jeff? I think for me, the hardest part was just the amount of water, like (laughs) overall. Although, you know, Chris was underwater, Craig was above primarily some underwater pieces, but we had, I think, over half. I mean, Dan, would you say like 60% of our sets had a water feature almost in them? Like there was water all around all the time. I mean, there was water um, everywhere. I mean, yeah. if you think about it, just the dump tanks for the North Triangle, is a million gallons of water for one yeah. set. So Yeah. That, I think, was the overall challenge in, uh, for all of us, I think, was just the amount of the water everywhere. And then Dan had the challenges, as he said, of like, you know, two dump tanks that are like 500,000 gallons each you know, that I think, you know, fill up a swimming pool in two seconds, you know, that there's a lot of water moving. So there's a lot of technical aspects that back to your build question, Dan's building some of the biggest water tanks that have ever been used, you know, in, a, <laughs> I think in any film ever, right. Um, with six foot butterfly valve. So there's a physical aspect to that. That's extremely challenging. Right. And then you have, you know, Craig, who's now referencing how all of that water moves, to create it in CG. Like what are the real dynamics of water? We have real reference and that's kind of where the bridge between their worlds connects. Uh, where we're trying to get stuff in camera, but we get to see how real water moves. And that's kind of, the, I think, a challenge then from Craig and the ILM side versus then Chris, you know, he's all underwater. So then we had underwater tanks, you know, 20 foot deep, I think 48 foot uh, diameter tanks that we shot in on stage. And then we excavated, you know, I think other tanks outside. So there was that, that challenge there back to, again, the physical aspects from a production side, and then trying to get as much of those pieces to give us real content. If that makes sense. You know, pixels mm-hmm. on the screen at the end of the day. So all of the effort that Dan put, regardless if it's above water or underwater, and then how Autumn's lit it and Hannah's designed a set piece that we preserve as many pixels to get those in the theater and then do our extensions that are embracing the realities of, of water, which I think that was then the challenge on Chris's side that he kind of hinted at was just how do we how do we uh, represent Ryan and Hannah's vision accurately to be also feel underwater? Like, the, you know, because it can easily break and you're, and you're creating a fantastical world, which is allowed. I mean, you know, you can, it's filmmaking. We can do it. You can make whatever you want. It can, you know, you can have infinite, you know, visibility if they wanted. Um, but I think one thing that Chris and I really pushed for was trying to keep water real. Visibility falls off and colors are absorbed. And so that was kind of that challenge for water. And then all the other sets had water features, which added a challenge production wise and visual effects wise to all the other, you know, partners that were working on it. And then just Dan's headache of, you know, in our gaffer, every set had to then have different setups from a rigging standpoint because water was there. So that I think the water aspect of the feature was an extreme challenge production wise, visual effects wise on, on, on all fronts, I think. So, Craig, what do you think? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say, like, for, for me, you know, and it, it might be the same for Chris, although, you know, Chris um, had probably less constraints. You show up and on the vendor side, you know, there's there's a whole probably year of planning that you don't have to take into consideration, right? <laughs> like, you're like, oh, Jeff, Dan, you guys have worried about the budget and what we can afford and you know, dump as much water as we can and let's just <laughs> let's just go with it, right? And and because all that is really hard planning and really hard negotiating. On my side, you show up, you see the just fantastic stuff that happens, 
And then it's a, it is, like Jeff was saying, a matter of trying to keep as much as you can and knowing that, you know, it's always a trade-off on set. Like you, you have a million gallons of water, but you can't dump a million gallons of water on actors. So then they start dialing back, you know, how much they're, they're allowing Dan to dump. It becomes conversations of, is it better to have a million gallons of water without actors in it? Or is it better to have actors with less water? And it's it's that kind of um, trade-off that you end up with. And just guessing, to be honest with you, like what's best and you know what's going to allow us to keep the most amount of stuff that was shot. In this, it was a nice balance of like, there was a lot of water on those sets, a lot of flowing water, dynamic water um, that we were able to save. So I, I think at the end, like I said, it was a guess, but it was some good guessing here. That's, the, that's what you get from Dan. I think Dan's experience, <laughs> um, you know, Dan goes big, in it, but he also, everything's calculated. Like, you know, it's guessing, but I think Dan's guessing is very, you know, not to, I'll let, not to speak for you, Dan, but there's lots of math that goes into everything yes. that Dan's doing. Dan, could you explain a little bit about what that looks like? Well, we start off building a replica miniature of the set. And we scaled down the water and we did flow tests and did calculations on what the flow rates would have to be for different levels of water within the set. And then we backed all those numbers into the full size components. So we knew what the flow rates were. We knew what the percentage of the valve we had to open to get those flow rates. So if we wanted to start with Ryan said, hey, I want it three feet deep. He said, okay, well, if we start with 30%, we'll get three feet. And we kind of back into it that way. And the other thing that plays in all this that Craig reminded me of is, you know, you got a shooting schedule and there's only so many days you get to shoot this thing. So it's not like you get to go out there and say, hey, let's try it here, try it here, try it here, try it here. It's like, hey, we're going to shoot your gag today, like right now. Pick a number. Let's do it. And we don't get to try again tomorrow because we're moving on. So, okay. How long did it construction wise, how long did it take you to get all that set up and built that out there on? Well, it was interesting because we, we started off that we were going to build them from scratch and we, we designed the tanks, we engineered them and we were coming back from COVID. So we went to order the steel and the steel was unavailable. We couldn't get the material. So we started trying to figure out what we could repurpose to build the tanks. And we ended up um, finding a company that built these portable water tanks. So we, we got their tanks, we re-engineered the side panels, and then we found some valves from a company that made valves for nuclear power plants. And they happened to have four extra valves sitting on the shelf. So we grabbed those valves, we built adapters, we took the tanks, and then we had dump tanks. Crazy process. (laughs) That is really wild. (laughs) And then Chris, you know, obviously Telecon is like a a big, beautiful world. Is there a particular scene or effect that um, you enjoyed focusing on? It's almost like two parts, really. Like I, there's there's shots of Namor that were shot dry that we had to make look underwater. And it goes mm. back to like your earlier question when you were talking about realism. And that was something that Jeff was talking about, is that even when we had some shots that were wet and some that were dry, we always had great reference from the tank for those, you know, particular shots. So there's always a, you know, the tank component, you know, we had all these amazing 
tank footage that we had really in water. So it had we had to make sure all of our stuff that was digital could match up to that. And there's even times where there was other shots where we had some great action from the actors that we grabbed from another shot and put behind these characters, pitched it to Ryan and said, this looks great. Can we put these together? And it really helped improve the shot. So all of that tank work was amazing for that. And, you know, in terms of favorite sequences, I also really was a big fan of the mining mission that happens in the beginning. I mean, you have the two, I guess they're scientists or divers moving forward and, and, and finding um, the vibranium, like beautiful plates that were shot. It was a combination with us also creating this digital world. And then we had this great reference of hydrothermal vents and what they really look like. And I just love the sequence because it really looked like that in the end, like, you know, some of our footage. So it had that element of realism, but it also had, you know, the um, kind of the suspense of the sequence. So I'm still a big fan of that. Even though that's outside of Telecon, I still really love that sequence. And then you have the added component of people wearing fabric underwater, having real hair that moves underwater. What is it like um, once you have that plate photography to sort of do the dance that you have to do with real, you know, real fabric, real hair, or mm -hmm. vice versa, going taking dry photography and trying to make it look underwater and those components that need to be changed. Yeah, I think there's there's a, a combination of that. And Jeff could probably speak to, and Dan, the, um, the real fabric underwater, because I guess you guys were using little weights and you were like, you got to paint out that little weight there and these little weights that, to help keep <laughs> them from, you know, getting in their face and all over the place. So we had that as a reference, you know, to match to. So we had dynamics that we were running for that and, and trying to artistically sculpt, you know, the look of that. But the thing that was actually, we spent the most time on probably was the marine snow, that little bit of stuff that's floating in the water. No. There was a lot of con like conversations about quality, density, and it does, it is really the characteristic look. And then I remember at one point we did that one shot, Jeff, it was the one that everyone liked, like, that's the look. And it was just like, it was the perfect, you know, the light on there. And we said like, this is the target shot. But then we plugged those numbers into another shot and it didn't look anything like it. So it was like <laughs> on each shot, like, okay, how do we get back to that look? So it's like you said with water there, it's just, you think you've nailed it, but then it's like you just switch the camera angle or you do something slightly different. And it's just like um, having to, to kind of tame it all over again. Jeff? I think with effects work, generally speaking, it's, you can get something to look beautiful through a certain angle. And then as Chris, as Chris says, you change the camera angle and it looks totally different and you're now back into, you know, so a lot of that work uh, almost becomes one off in shots. Like at least we know you that, that, that Ryan in the studio likes something. So at least that's a target, but it's reworking. And I think that was one of the big challenges. I'm sure Craig for you too, you know, big wide shots of the city needed to be treated differently than something where we're putting, you know, uh, white water on top of some of Dan's practical water. Like, and so there's lots of, um, so much work goes into it and that it isn't just rinse and repeat. It's, uh, each, each one ends up being kind of its own, its own challenge. And Dan, I don't, is that, would you say that same for you? Like, do you build your dump tanks kind of to camera as well? Like, is there, or, or, or to, cause I, I'm just trying to think of the, even for the tribal council, those big water cannons, you know, we're always kind of looking at it from camera perspective. Is that something you're, I guess I would assume you're also trying to, to think of and it, it, it's different per angle. It, it is. We, we design all of that to work for that specific angle. And the, uh, 
tribal council, we built those water cannons so we could project 15 tons of water through that window opening into that set. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting listening to what Chris had to say because behind the scenes, we've got a lot of work with water. We've got to filter it, heat it, clean it. I mean, all of that stuff to get it where it's shootable, right? And, um, you know, it doesn't look right because it's got too much particulate. It's got this, it's got that. It's uh, interesting. You're fighting the same thing in the computer that we're fighting looking at the tank. Yeah, it's the same stuff. (laughs) It's the same pain no matter where 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 you're doing it. You know, I actually, I would love to talk about that scene because it sounds like it's a kind of a perfect convergence. Also, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the film, go head over to Disney Plus, watch it, come back. Okay, you've, you've done that now. <laughs> but there's obviously the the huge scene where Namor attacks Wakanda. So we're having a, a wonderful mix of being on the above world and the, the underworld, as it were. We see that water shooting in in and hurting our dear Angela Bassett, a.k.a. Queen Ramonda. From sort of your previs to uh, plate photography to post, would you guys just talk us a little bit about how you planned for that scene, how you shot it on the day, and then how you um, took it into post? I'll uh, start and then hand it off to Dan and Craig. But so there was initial conversation just conceptually with Ryan about Namor throwing hydro bombs at the window, you know, we knew that then that the glass would explode. And then there were conversations that we had that kind of trickled into post with regards to like what's made out of vibranium, what breaks and what doesn't break. And then there, we did cheat some of those in there because we, you know, just impactfully, we needed the glass to break, but we wanted to keep some structure there of the, the window mullions. And then I think once we kind of knew Roughly what we wanted, Previs stepped in and kind of started to shot design what it could look like along with Autumn uh, DP. She she and Scott Meadows, our Previs supervisor, kind of worked together to kind of design the shots along with Ryan. And then Dan, I think, kind of takes it from there and starts presenting different types of cannons or um, dump tanks to Ryan to determine what the look is. And then I think from there, Dan, then you kind of, you know, if you maybe want to run with it from that yeah. point, once you understood how, how Ryan wanted the look, then you kind of tested stuff in the parking lot. That, that's what we, we <laughs> took the previs. Once you had the previs dialed into a kind of that specific point, you, you take the hydro bomb. It has to be a forceful impact. It couldn't be slow. It couldn't build and strain. So we eliminated dump tanks pretty early because of the time it takes for the water to get velocity. So we designed something that could be an explosion of water, would replicate the hydro bombs. We ended up building six very large water cannons and projecting, you know, nearly 15 tons of water through that window opening uh, into the set. And at the same time, we plumbed the set with some plumbing so we could basically flood the set the instant the water from the windows came into the set so we could wash her down into the, the glass. And you did that, I assume, without actors. We had people in the shots. Really? <laughs> we had two stunts and then... Um... I mean, Angela was in a, a lower, a little section, you know, in that there is a tight shot in the film where you're on her head. And I think, Craig, we augmented a little bit, but for the most part, that was, there was a lot of plate photography with Angela in that, but then there were stunt, stunt doubles in there as well. We had Angela in there for the uh, rig where we flooded the set kind of instantly yep. and washed her down in that hole. Yeah. Good honor. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a, an epic super soaker day. The, but I think that that scene actually, also we used miniatures too. Dan built a, um, a third scale miniature glass window because when we did the gag on set, we couldn't have the glass in, uh, even with the stunt doubles and crew and, and, and whatnot. So there, there was no glass in the, in the windows on the set. But then we did 
a third scale miniature that Dan hit uh, with water that did have glass in it to try to marry those two pieces together. I mean, that whole scene actually is pretty phenomenal in the sense that then we did tank work as well with Angela, you know, Queen Ramonda drifting down. And then, you know, so that was, I think, you know, another great example of a lot of complexity um, and lots of hands off between Dan and, and Craig's team as well. Yeah, there was it was a lot of stuff shot on set, but nothing really complete. You know, we would yeah. shoot this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece, and they'd have to go somewhere and get assembled. Yeah, right. And shot <laughs> and shot like months apart sometimes. Yes. <laughs> and once you guys had all that plate photography and started working on it in in post, what was that process like? Well, it's again, there's the, there's a process that um, is really incredibly valuable, which is post viz for a lot of this, which again, goes back to kind of Scott Meadows team to do a, a rough assembly so that kind of everyone, you know, knows uh, Ryan can have something in his edit and we kind of fine tune kind of how much of what action we want to see and we need to deal with. And that eventually gets kind of, again, kind of fine tuned and trimmed to, to just what we need to deal with in post. And we can take that rough assembly and the, the footage pieces that have already been slugged in in a rough way and start to then pick it apart as far as, you know, this part's mostly successful. This part's completely successful. Timing wise, they need to be adjusted. But I, I will say, like, there was so much tremendous power in what Dan was able to do that the scenes came together in post-viz with the real footage in a way that you know, you could immediately see what it needed to be. And Chris, did you get to work on that sequence? No, I didn't. It's all interesting to me okay. because I just, I just saw the final shots. I was like, that's cool. You know, so hearing Dan talk about all of this stuff. Um, I actually had a question for Dan. So with the, um, with those cannons, um, were those some of the biggest ones or the most you had ever done before? They, um, was it similar or was it a new build or was it um, familiar? It was a new build for us. We took um, large steel pipes, four foot, diameter ID by 10, 10 foot long and we welded steel plugs in the end of it and then we um, plumbed it with large plumbing and dumped 500 gallons of compressed air into each each pipe to push the water out <laughs> wow you talk about assembling a team I mean we had a hundred guys that were all great welders and great fabricators yeah. and great builders and foreman and they're working around the clock almost building yeah. all of this stuff to get it <laughs> on set make it by the time they're going to shoot it and yeah. A, a tremendous amount of work and so many kudos to you all. Before I let you go, I just want to know from each of you, what was your favorite scene, component, uh, moment within the film um, or something maybe that you're most proud of looking back? Uh, for me, particular fan of Namor's Little Ankle Wings. <laughs> Greg, you'll be happy to hear of that. <laughs> As a comic fan, a real dream come true. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> what I'm most, I think, proud of overall is I think I'm really happy with the overall kind of look of the film. I feel this one, it's more somber. And I think so. I like kind of the overall tone of the film. But the most probably enjoyable aspect of it, you know, was collaborating with Chris and Craig and Dan, uh, Ryan and Hannah, Autumn. Just I think that part of it. It's a miracle any movie ever gets made um, in reality. And I think that the relationships that you make along the way and hopefully that your film at the end impacts people and they like it. So that's to me often just added 
bonus. So to me, I think the, the collaboration and the uh, dedication of all of you know the soups and, and HODs and then the hundreds of artists, I think, was probably the a gratifying part in the world that we were in at the time. You know, with COVID and the restrictions and our schedule was tough. It was a very hard show. And, and I think the fact that people survived and, you know, weren't trying to kill each other at the end was was a testament to all of their their leaders and pushing it through. So I think that that's probably the part I'm proud of, of the most. Craig? For me, it's a little bit of, of a similar thing in that, like, I, it's hard to pick out one part. Like, I could go through probably a dozen parts that and each one be like, oh, yeah, no, it was that one. No, it was yeah. it was that one. <laughs> You know, but uh, again, like I enjoy world building, being given kind of um, the challenge of of the Golden City of Wakanda. It was a huge honor and enjoyment of the first movie and being able to revisit it. And then the other thing is you don't usually get movies where they they build this much set. Like every day, every set showing up to was was a tremendous amount of artistry and and build that had gone into it and so then you know you walk the set and then at the end of the set you see these giant dump tanks and different dump tanks for each set right like there's there's containers on one and and there's there's big tower tanks on the other and there's cannons on the other and it's it's um seeing how much goes into each fabric of it and then knowing that you know it's entrusted to you to finish at the end of the day is really enjoyable Chris, how about for you? The best, uh, my favorite part. I mean, it's uh, Jeff might have said most of it, really, but it was. It is a similar thing that it was the collaboration, but it was also like we talked about earlier, the ability to pitch ideas, you know, and to be able to show different work and things like that. And I'd send across, you know, different renders or things that we'd done, and we'd be able to discuss them. And um, so building Telecon was was fun in that part, you know, because of that collaboration. Favorite sequences. I mean, it's hard to say because there's each one I kind of appreciate. Like I said, the mining mission I like. Even some of the, they're very quick, the cenote dives. Like there's um, some beautiful stuff in there. They go by fast, but I really do just like the graphic quality of them and and how they ended up. But when you first asked the question, I actually, what popped in my head was someone else's work, which was on the bridge, like the car flip Mm. shot, you know, because I think it's because I was in the theater and somebody yelled, what? You know, like, like really, like it just they just it reacted to it. So, like when you asked the question, that's what popped up because it's somehow ingrained in my head that that shot has an impact. Um, and I don't know that much about it. I responded to it. A lot of other people did as well. And what about for you, Dan? <laughs> well, I, well, obviously, the, the collaboration is why you go to work. It's just enjoyable working with all the other department heads, working with visual effects. It's that's the, the best part of the movie. Um, and there was so much water on the show, it was challenging. But actually, Chris, that car gag, that was my favorite gag on the movie. Yeah, okay. It, it, just, <laughs> it, it matched, great. It, it matched the previous so well, and it, it just was looked so good. And it was different than a lot of the other car gags. You don't get to do that hydrobomb with a car. It's just it's, <laughs> it's a unique gag. Yeah. And that was an interesting build for you too, Dan, right? You had... Because you lo- it, it kicked up, and then there was a, a something that helped bring the back end around as well. So that was, was a, a complex. It was a difficult gag because we had to bring the car straight down a track, then we had to get it to go sideways, then start the flip, then hit it with the water to finish the flip. And 
if you had any of the cannons mismatched, they wouldn't line up. You know, like you could flip it with the water, but it wouldn't look as good as if you had the other one and vice versa. So it was a, a big timing thing and it worked out really well. What you guys do is so cool. <laughs> you guys get to, it seems just like a, a really incredible experience to work on the film. And the film is so unbelievably phenomenal. Congratulations on all the many awards and nominations and accolades you. you guys have received. So, so well-deserved. Um, and of course, everyone, if you haven't yet, please go watch Marvel Studios Black Panther Wakanda Forever now streaming on Disney+. Plus. And thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. Thank you. Congrats again to the VFX team on their Oscar nom. Um, we will be watching this weekend to to wait for their big category. Lots of great stuff going on at the Oscars this weekend. Fingers crossed, everybody. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Of course, Black Panther Wakanda Forever is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. All right, time for question of the week. You know, next week we're going to have on Marvel Comics Editor-in-Chief C.B. Sabolsky to talk about Marvel anniversaries, a little hype for our X-Men uh, 60th anniversary event. So with that in mind, Lorraine, you had a great question of the week. Yeah. In the X-Men's last exceptional 60 years, what mutant characters have meant the most to you and why? It's one of those things I feel like the X-Men, of all the characters at Marvel, honestly, have had the most emotional impact and ties with so many people over the years. Maybe also, you know, a lot of folks of our generation, it was like the the 90s was like the X-Men-a-palooza of Marvel also. So definitely deeply entrenched in the X-Men-averse of it all. But, you know, I know for me, Wolverine was a huge touchstone growing up. I had surgery when I was a kid and I had to get metal pins put in my legs. For me, that was always such a huge character because it allowed me to talk to other kids and explain what happened to me in a way that sounded really cool and sounded like I was a mutant instead of like a kid who had a disability. And that to me was really so meaningful. And there's so many other phenomenal characters that have meant so much to me over the years. I mean, there's a jillion of them. And I think part of it is also like, when you first get into the X-Men, the characters you connect with, folks a little bit older than us really are like Kitty Pride because she was the POV character for mm -hmm. younger readers at a certain time. And then for us, maybe it's more Jubilee. Some people who are younger than us have a variety of different characters because we had, you know, a whole bunch of new generations of younger heroes. For me, you know, I, I just loved Cable and the mystery around him, and the coolness and, and sort of like that vibe in the 90s. Wolverine did a lot for me. It was, I think in more recent time, Jubilee again has come back around as a really important character, just her journey as a mom mm. and, and what that means and her family and overall just like the family vibes of the X-Men and how it is a, a very big found family and it's not perfect and it's not, it doesn't fit into any one box and it's beautiful and incredible. I think that's part of what I love so much about, about the mutants and the X-Men and, and then they just break my heart. All the friggin' time. And I think we can all agree at the end of the day that Cyclops is the worst. Yeah. But you can tweet us your answers using the hashtag this week in Marvel. Email them to twinpodcasts at marvel.com or send us a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash this week in Marvel. Please make sure to tell us if it's okay to read on the show. My personal views on Cyclops do not represent those of uh, the company, but it does represent my personal opinion. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right. Let's keep this rolling. Getting into... This, this week, week in, in 
messages. Our question of the week last week was, what superhero deserves their own musical a la Rogers the Musical? First up, Karis Pollard at A. Karis Pollard said, I've had a think, and the answer is Emma Frost. Mm. She has the outfits. She has the glam for a musical. There's plenty of material to choose from, sad and uplifting, and there's a fairly happy ending of being uplifted to the Quiet Council. Oh, Karis, you think that's a happy ending. That's a real Regina George kind of musical. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We've got Jonathan Carlin at Jonkerlin who said, uh, we finally get the Nebula musical we've been waiting for, the Blue Meanie. Oh, my gosh. Love it. Oh, my gosh. Dragon Mimi at Charlie underscore Lottie says, I think Groot. Different cast members could play the different ages of Groot. I think some artistic translation would be needed, though, because otherwise the dialogue would just be, I am Groot. I am Groot would be a great title, though. Also, it would have Rocket. Yes. Um, I feel like Rocket would have to be the narrator of the musical. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Through the eyes of Rocket. That's what <sighs> That's it's so called. good. Um, <laughs> all right. We've got Alyssa at Quam01 underscore, who said, my name's Alyssa, and I just started listening to the podcast. I love it so much. It would definitely be a crime if I didn't say Star-Lord. I feel like he'd be fantastic in something like way over the top and dramatic. Also, I cannot wait for Marvel Studios Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I mean, the Guardians music is so integral to the Guardians universe at this point. Like, absolutely. Absolutely. A jukebox musical? Absolutely. Let's do it. Uh, all right. Jay Boaz at Jay Botography tweeted, Up until the Deadpool 3 announcement, I thought a Wolverine musical was the only way to get Hugh Jackman back into the claws. I'm still here for that. I mean, come on. Come on. Hugh in a Wolverine musical. I'm into it. I'm into it. I'm into it. All right, we've got Aiden Coxon at Coxon. Aiden, who said Deadpool would have his own musical. His comedy skills and action would be a perfect role. Honestly, this would slap. This would yeah. be such a good like parody musical. Oh, he would yeah. make fun of himself. He would parrot all of the musical styles, um, like in the sort of like Mel Brooks producer esque yeah. vibe. I'm into it. Let's do yeah. it. Let's go. So fun. Eliza underscore Sylvia tweeted, I'm so looking forward to the Scarlet Witch musical. I like that you're you're just saying, I'm looking forward to this. I'm putting this out into the world. <laughs> it's going to happen. Maybe she's magic. Maybe mm-hmm. it'll happen. All right. We got an email here from Carol who said, I have a few different options of Marvel characters that deserve musicals. You guys can decide which one is best. Number one, a musical for Loki. I feel like it would be just so funny. <laughs> I bet the majority of the songs would be about him being annoyed by Thor. <laughs> Number two, a Deadpool musical. Can you imagine how crazy and fun that would be? Number three, a musical of Korg. Aww. It'd be, just be about Korg. And you know what would make it better would be if it was written and directed by Korg himself. Thank you so much for the question this week. It was so much fun to think about. Oh, Korg. Bless sweet Korg. Uh, We've got an email from Miles Sylvester, and Miles says, A Marvel take on cats using characters such as Black Cat, White Tiger, Tiger, Black Panther, and Sabretooth. I picture one of them singing Memory. Oh, my God. Why isn't there? (gasps) Ryan, we have to pitch this. How do we get... How do we get a variant series of musical-themed covers like Cats, but with the Marvel characters? Oh, my lord. This is... Miles, you are a 
god dang genius. Yes. This is an amazing idea. <sighs> I want every version of this now. Like, fa- who's in Phantom of the Opera? Let's go all the way. Lady in White about Emma Frost. <laughs> oh, we got an email here from William R. William, thank you. We love the amazingly thoughtful emails you send, um, but we're just going to share some pieces for brevity. So let's get into it. Happy spring, Twim hosts. My character that I would pick to have their own musical would be Emma Frost tackling origin stories through her times of being a geek with natural brown hair and glasses being bullied, then later on having to change her visual appearance for the better of her mutant future, while also observing traits from Astrid Bloom, like her British accent and attitude that makes Emma much better. Oh, man. Love that. Um, Last but not least, anyone who has remembered the voice of Emma Frost really well and could pull off playing her in Broadway, that would be Carrie Walgren. Oh, that's fun. Would have to be the one to do it since she has done her own music as of recent. Carrie Walgren, of course, is an incredible voice actress. She's amazing. We've definitely talked to her over the years over on Marvel Live during Comic-Cons and things. She's so fabulous. I love that. Great shout out. Yeah. We got an email from Jim. Jim, I'm not wrapping this, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate you attempting to get us to do that. If we had James on the show, again, we could have. But this is to the tune of the opening to Hamilton. I am known as Stanley, and I'm Jack the King Kirby. And there's a million characters we haven't made, but we'll create. Yes, we'll create. And then that would be a stanza from the opening to Excelsior, the musical, the story of Marvel and the people behind it, which is a really oh. fun idea. We got an email here from Joe Hoffman. Again, love your fabulous emails. We're going to just share the highlights here for the sake of brevity. Let's get into it. In answer to this week's question of the week, I'd love to see a musical about Iron Man, if for no other reason than to see Tony rocking out to the title track as it's being blasted by Ozzy and the rest of Black Sabbath. I think that would be epic. Much love to you all at Marvel from your faithful friend and loyal ambassador. I love that. I am Iron Man, like a rock musical. Which yeah, rock start. musical, lots of ACDC in there. Yeah, you could do some fun stuff with that one. That'd be pretty cool. Over on Facebook, Carly said, my answer for who deserves a musical, a musical involving my fur boy, Rocket, or a musical involving him and Lila, disregarding the ending of the 2014 comic series, Secret Wars, that would be sweet. Love this week in messages, by the way. Thanks, Carly. Carly, I love how much you stand for Rocket. And you are always here promoting and hyping up Rocket. It is terrific. The love he deserves. Mm -hmm. All right. We also got a couple of responses that we couldn't fit in last week's episode where we asked about Marvel Studios' Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania and your favorite moments. Dog Girl said, one word, holes. That's it. (laughs) So good. I have holes. So much fun. Uh, Balala Lion said, it's a bunch of little moments that I enjoyed from the movie, such as Scott Lang explaining to Kang that he always gets mistaken for looking like Thor, Hank Pym's reaction when he found out Janet spent time in the quantum realm with Lord Krylar, and what Cassie says to Modok at the end. Not sure if I can say what she told him in this email. Probably not. It's We Are PG Plus, Bilal. Uh, also, don't want to spoil it, but the mid and post credit scenes gave me goosebumps. I still can't believe they were able to pull it off so soon, but I'm glad they did. A lot of good teases there, mm-hmm. Bilal, which means everybody go see Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania in theaters right now. Yeah. And one more from Raphael on Facebook. So I was able to see the new Ant-Man movie today. Spoiler alert. 
Modoc, but yeah, yeah, lol, yeah. great movie. Uh, loved the Army of Ants. It's not an Ant Man movie without Hank Pym and an army of highly intelligent ants. Keep up the great work, Marvel. Uh, and again, if you haven't already, or if you have already, go see it again. Uh, Marvel Studios Ant Man and the Wasp Quantumania is now in theaters. Yeah. In the future, please try and send us your responses to the question of the week by Tuesday or Wednesday after the episode releases so we can include it. Um, We can't always get them, but we do love everybody who writes in. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And as a thank you and as promised, here is that Marvel Insider Code. So if you're not already signed up, head over to marvel.com slash insider where you can earn points for doing stuff like reading comics, checking out articles, even listening to this very podcast. You could be getting Marvel Insider points. Mm -hmm. Plus, we have this very special code for listening to this episode, and that code is Wakanda Forever. Spelled like Wakanda Forever. W-A-K-A-N-D-A-F-O-R-E-V-E-R. Uh, this code is only valid until March 17th, but you will receive 5,000 Marvel Insider points when you enter it at the This Week in Marvel podcast code redeem activity at marvel.com slash insider. There is a limited number of redemptions available, one redemption code per Marvel Insider. And of course, Marvel Insider is open to U.S. residents, 18 plus only terms apply. But get over there. And get it while you can, while supplies last. It is 5,000 juicy, delicious Marvel Insider points. Mm-hmm. All right, that's it for us this week. This episode of This Week in Marvel is produced by Cara McGurk-Allison, Isabel Robertson, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. Special thanks to Deadpool the Musical. Deadpool the Musical, the only musical that breaks the fourth wall more than most musicals. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe.